I'm Christine Dolan, and I'm a journalist, and I know a lot of people know Mike Lindell because of some of the issues having to do with elections, but I know him in a different way. Last year, in the middle of the 2020 election, my back was killing me because I'm teleworking. So a friend of mine sent me a pillow that Mike Lindell manufactured, and it helped me to sit on a chair doing interviews, too many interviews during the day because we're all working off-site. And then this year, because we're working off-site and we, we all want to be comfortable, I tried Mike Lindell's slippers. Now, I'm a big one on slippers because I like comfort. I have worn moccasin slippers all my life. And when I tried Mike Lindell's slippers, I couldn't believe this because it really does have four layers of cushions. It's like having very loose tennis shoes on. And it's easy because you really do wear them all night long if you're working like me from the early hours of the morning to the late hours at night. So I highly recommend Mike Lindell's slippers and his pillows if you've got a back problem and you're sitting down. Now, how you get the discount for this is very simple. It's on our site. CDM is the promo code for it. Promo code CDM is what we're asking you to do. Again, you will feel comfortable for your back with those little pillows that he has and also for the slippers that you can get from him. And now let's get to our guests. So today in American Conversations, we have Dan Kovalik, who is a lawyer by education and trade. Uh, he also has taken a passion for U.S. foreign policy overseas. In the 80s, he was in uh, traveling in uh, Latin America, Central America, and he's uh, took on through a tort claim. You, it was against Coca-Cola, Drummond, Occidental Petroleum on behalf of their, because of their abuses. Um, in Was it Colombia at that point in time? Colombia, South America, yes. Colombia, South America. All right, so Dan, you, you wrote a piece in the Huffington Post in 2016 saying that Russia was not the enemy. And then uh, our dear friend, Tony Lyons, the Skyhorse, asked you to write a book. And it, the book focuses on, you know, getting into, because of the timing of it, was the Russia Gate. Give us your thoughts about the book, and, and then we're going to get into, you know, what your observations are today about what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia. Well, the thrust of the book, uh, it goes back to the first Cold War, and the idea that Russia has been for, I guess, almost a century, really, maybe more, a convenient enemy for the United States, right? Uh, during the first Cold War, anytime the U.S. wanted to intervene in another country, like, say, just Guatemala 1954 or Iran 1953, it would, it would raise the, the, the Russian or at that time Soviet specter. that Somehow we were there to fight the Soviets or the communists whether it was true or not. And in those two instances, for example, it absolutely was not true. Uh, we wanted other things there in the case of Iran, the oil, and in the case of Guatemala, free reign for a United Fruit Company. Uh, but we used Russia as the bugaboo. You know, that was the, the monster under the bed that we could always point to to justify whatever we wanted to do. And then, of course, after the collapse of the Soviet Union for a time, Russia couldn't be used that way because, you know, we were friendly with Russia and Yeltsin and and even with Putin in the early days. And, of course, then that changed at some point. I would say the first real blow to that relationship, which was very, very good at first, you might remember, between Putin and, and George W. Bush, where Bush said he saw in Putin's eyes, saw his soul. 
and they were friends. But the blow in that relationship came when Russia and Putin did not go along with the Iraq war, right, in 2002, 2003. Um, and so the book really de- details that history, details what happened in Ukraine in 2014, uh, and yes, also tries to debunk the Russia, so-called Russiagate scandal, which is one commentator, I think, uh, uh, you know, accurately put, was a scandal without any allegations. Um, so that that's the book in, in a nutshell. And I, I forgive me, I did not mention the book in my introduction to you, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. We need to put that out there. Yes, please, well, by Skyhorse <laughs> Publishing, because right. Tony, Tony's going to be watching this and I want to make sure he's happy. So. I know. I'm, I'm surprised he hasn't pinged me yet. But listen, I want to. Where can first of all, before we get go farther, where can we find that book? Well, you can find it anywhere. Uh, you can certainly find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, you know, it should be at your local bookstore. If not, you can have them order it. But it's basically everywhere where books are sold. All right. So, what are your thoughts? Because l- looking back at you looked at 2014. Todd was there. He's been in and out of that area. Um, you know, since 2014, and he spent a long period of time there. What do you, What are your thoughts about what's happening now? Or no, you know, what, I mean, what, what happened then and leading up to now? Well, uh, first of all, there was an undemocratic coup um, against a president named Yanukovych that the U.S. had a role in instigating and engineering, and we know. Some of this from Victoria Newland herself, from some phone calls she had that were recorded where she bragged about jockeying the change in government at the time in 2014. I think she also said that the CIA or $5 billion had been spent on CIA ops there to help, help pull it off. And this was done because Yanukovych at the time was at least considering instead of signing a deal with the EU, signing a deal with Russia and Putin, even though he hadn't made up his mind yet. But that was enough to give the West pause about uh, their desire to keep him in. And then, of course, uh, you had a guy named Poroshenko came in, come in, who was very, um, had a lot of um, opposition to the Russian ethnics in Ukraine, made some very hostile statements against them. At some point, uh, Russian was outlawed as a second language in the schools. And the ethnic Russians in the Donbass region um, got scared. And they be, uh, two of the republics there, Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, declared independence. And this started a civil war uh, between the government and Kiev and those breakaway uh, republics. Uh, there was an event, I believe it was in 2014, um, that that really scared people, and that was this massacre in Odessa where scores of mostly ethnic Russian Ukrainians were, were burned alive in this trade union building in Odessa. And of course, you know, the West is usually the media. Dan, let me step in there. Most people also don't know that in Donbass in 2014, the uh, battalions on the, the volunteer battalions, a lot of them were ethnic cleansing the villages in Donbass, uh, getting rid of the Russian population. Right. In and a, these, a very brutal way. Yeah. Right. And these were ultra right, mm-hmm. even some neo Nazi. 
mm-hmm. um, type battalions. Although the the, the former government, uh, the president of Uruguay, Pepe Mujica, said, you know, they trace their roots back to the twenties. They're not even fairly called neo Nazis. They're just straight up Nazis. But um, yeah, and so uh, this conflict results in the death of fourteen thousand people. Right. Um, 80% were people in the Donbass region. So they took the brunt of this conflict. And as you say, some of that was fought between the military and Kiev, but some were fought against those people by, by these ultra-right uh, battalions right there in, in Ukraine. And so, you know, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, you know, I think it's fair to say it didn't start three weeks ago. It started eight years ago. And the Russians were watching this happen. They did begin to support these breakaway republics. Um, there were volunteer Russians who came into the republics to support the militias there. All that's true, but that came after Stephen F. Cohen, you know, the great Russian historian and Sovietologist who taught at Princeton, was a, an advisor to Gorbachev, said, you know, the Russian support came after the fact, after the conflict began. And so this idea, when every time you hear about the militias, you know, you're told they're Russian backed, you know, as a factual matter, they are Russian supported, but to just call them Russian backed, which suggests that somehow Russia instigated this is not true. It's not true. This was instigated first and foremost by the coup in thousand. 2014, then by Kiev's hostility towards this region and the particular hostility by these neo-Nazi groups to this region, which openly called for it, in fact, began the process of ethnic cleansing uh, in the Donbass. And and one of the things that leads to the invasion by Russia in Ukraine um, three weeks ago well, I mean, the last year has been very eventful uh, leading up to that. So one, you had Zelensky, who, you know, was voted in in 2019 on a peace platform that he was going to actually make peace with Russia. But apparently, and there was a good story on the in the gray zone on this, apparently he was pressured by death threats by these neo-Nazi groups not to give in to Russia. And in fact, to accept the neo-Nazi battalions, which he, he was not initially inclined to do, but he did because I think they made it clear if he didn't, you know, he'd find himself in a pine box. Um, so he did end up uh, accepting them. Uh, and then in um, the spring of 2021, he started saying he was going to forcibly take back Crimea from Russia. In the summer, he started saying he was going to forcibly take back the Donbass. And this began to worry the Russians. Um, and along, then, with, along with nuclear weapons. Possibly. Yes. Yeah, and then he started saying, I'm going to get back my nuclear weapons, which Ukraine had given up some time before in, a, hmm. in accordance with a, an agreement between a number of countries. In 1993, let's be, I mean, that's, you know, people have to understand that this is not just recently that he gave up the nuclear. Right. He was going to, he was, from everything that I have read and that he, that uh, Zelensky put out last year, and even in his statement on February 19th, he basically was saying, this is our last attempt at negotiating anything. And if not, they're going to throw, he was going to throw out all the agreements going back to 1993. Right. And he said this in particular right after he, he, he was in Munich with Kamala Harris. This was mm-hmm. days 
most days before the invasion. But the, so that was a thing. And then the other thing was that there was a buildup of Ukrainian troops, 60,000 troops on the Donbass border. You know, at least according to the Russians, they had intelligence and they said they found a document. Again, I, it has not been authenticated. But I think the Russians believed that the Ukrainians were poised to invade the Donbass and to possibly engage in an ethnic cleansing or worse of the Russian ethnic population. And this is what, um, you know, the calculus, uh, uh, this is what uh, Putin was looking at to make the calculus to invade. And I think there's a great, you know, interview. This guy's going around this, uh, I believe he was a colonel and a, and a chief advisor to Trump uh, from the Pentagon, this Douglas McGregor, who's been interviewed on a number of platforms, including by Grayzone. And he says, look, you know, um, yeah, that's what the Russians were seeing. And they decided they couldn't hold back and just let the Donbass be invaded. And again, watch Russians, by the way, I believe many of them have dual, at least dual citizenship. Some yeah, they, are, they all are Russian citizens. I yeah, there are Russian citizens. Again, like this is a, you know, I'm not going to, you know, say Ukraine isn't a legitimate country or anything like this, but it is a country with really shifting borders over the years, right? Um, and the East is really, you know, it's largely Russian and, it, it, you know, and it has a Russian identification. The West is not, and that's a different you know, thing entirely. But the East feels this, you know, fealty to Russia and, and, and to the ethnic ethnicity of, of Russia. And again, even before the invasion, again, we have to realize hundreds of thousands of these ethnic Russians were fled into Russia. You know, there's a huge migration into uh, the Rostov Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in Russia. And again, what I tell people, it would, look, if the U.S. were looking, if the U.S. were faced with this, it would be like Russia instigating a coup in Mexico City, right? That brought in an anti-American leader who also had neo-Nazis or what, what have you uh, as part of the military and began attacking English-speaking um uh, Mexicans near the nor- northern border of Mexico, right? And then thousands and thousands of these English-speaking Mexicans began flooding the U.S., you know, go across the border into the U.S. The, the U.S. would have something to say about this. I mean, I'm sorry. And then, you know, add that Russia also had, you know, how many um, bio labs in Mexico. I mean, it's inconceivable. It would never have gotten that far. I mean, the well, last we had, we had the situation in 1963, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, right. Ninety miles off our coast, we blockaded Cuba. I mean, and and that happened within within days of them finding yeah. out that missiles were. I mean, literally days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Russia has been tolerating this for eight years. Yeah. And and had asked for security guarantees. Had asked, and again. Very simple ones, uh, mm-hmm. and, and very simple ones at the eleventh hour, and the U.S. knew this was going to happen. I mean, and how do we know? We've been told for weeks and weeks before the invasion that the invasion was coming. Right? I, I listened for years to NPR. I literally just stopped because it, you know I've just decided it's not news; it's pure propaganda. But they were saying for weeks and weeks, Russia's going to invade. Russia's going to invade. 
So they knew it was going to happen, and they knew it was going to happen because we were not going to make one concession to Russia in terms of their security demands. And clearly the U.S. wanted this invasion. I'm not sure they are happy with, you know, what happened uh, entirely. I think they might be surprised that Russia has gone all the way to Kiev, um, but they wanted this. And they wanted this in part because they wanted to sanction Russia. They wanted to kick them off the swift. Well, they want regime change. They wanted regime change. Well, ideally. But if not, if not that, they wanted to wreck the Russian economy. I mean, which is the game plan, right? And this is what they did in Syria. If you can't, you know, sure, you want regime change. But if you can't do that, you just wreck the country of, of targeted country and that was the goal that has not worked out i think russia clearly economically is going to survive this and i think they were ready for this because the u.s showed its cards it's been threatening this for years um and and what has happened and i'm not sure the u.s was ready for this it's blown back against the u.s economy in a big way you know and now you have even saudi arabia saying they may stop trading Oil mm-hmm. on the dollar. I mean, the dollar is going to stop being the, the, the reserve currency in the world. The dollar, which, of course, has no backup in terms of commodities, right? Nixon got rid of the gold standard. Um, it's only as valuable as people think it is. It's the, you know, it's based on the full faith and credit clause. Um, it's going to start being worth nothing more than the paper it's printed on. I mean, that that we're seeing this with inflation, rising oil prices, and the U.S. has done this to itself, not just by sanctioning Russia. I actually think, yeah, I actually think Biden is working for China and wanted this in, in the long term goal. But let me ask you something on Putin. Why did he leave Donbass? I didn't. I was in your camp. I didn't think he would go across the border of Donbass. Once he invaded that area, I thought he would stop. But I mean, what, what do you think was his reasoning? His what pushed him over the edge? Well, I think look, I'm not a military strategist, but what I think they decided was that if he merely went into Donbass, yes, they could provide support to the militias for any attack, maybe even ward off an attack of troops. But then you still have this huge infrastructure of Ukraine, a military infrastructure, that sort of thing. They decided they're just going to destroy the entire military infrastructure of Ukraine so that they can't fire rockets into there, etc. And that's the goal. I mean, they've gone to Kiev, but they haven't gone to the rest of the West. I mean, they have no interest in, in Western Ukraine in terms of occupying it or whatever, but they apparently have decided they are going to destroy the, the entire military infrastructure of Ukraine, and that's what—that's the calculus. Now, whether it was Putin who decided that, I mean, he would have had the final say. But whether that was a military, you know, ult- you know ultimately a military decision, I think that—that that was again the calculus. That look, if they got went into Donbass, they could have warded off a troop invasion into the Donbass for some time, possibly. But it might have invited over time an even greater war between Russia and Ukraine, right? Because mm-hmm. if rockets from Kiev go hit Donbass mm-hmm. and hit Russians in there, you're going to be fighting that war now or you're going to be fighting it later. I think that that was the view. And I think for eight years that they've been wondering when it was that this war was going to really happen between mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine in a, in a bona fide way. So 
they decided not to take half measures since they had been taking quarter measures up to that point. And then, of course, they attacked that location, what, 25 miles from the Polish border that apparently was a staging ground for training, uh, various training, including training of the mercenaries that were coming in. And it was a place where armed shipments were coming in. And again, I think that was just purely, hey, we're going to show you we can hit wherever we want. We're not going to let weapons in here. We're not going to let mercenaries in here. So, yeah, they decided to go full in. I, I'm not sure, you know, and again, what I'm reading or the other take on this, and again, Douglas McGregor seems to agree with this, um, but other Russian experts, is that Putin didn't want this war. He's been holding off for eight years, um, but he felt that he had no choice, you know, again, that either it was going to happen in Ukraine or it was going to come to their doorstep in a big way. Um, and he wasn't going to have it. And, 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 you know, again, what I've been, um, you know, I, I've been reading and, and listening to things every day from various, uh, perspectives. And, um, I, you know, the polls, in, in Russia show massive support for this from the Russian people. And I think some of this, again, I understand is because the anti-Russian hatred, and I'm talking, I'm not talking anti-Putin hatred. I'm not ta- talking anti-Kremlin hatred, the anti-Russian hatred that has been sprung by this. And again, which obviously was right below the surface, right? Has shown the Russian people, the West want, doesn't want them. They want nothing to do with these people. It is clear to me that for years, that, that and Putin gave a speech, I think it was two weeks ago, that I read in full. And it was a very emotional speech. And what he said was, look, after the Soviet Union collapsed, we thought the deal was, okay, Russia's back, man. We're going to be admitted to the West, maybe even be part of NATO, if there's still a NATO um, and Russia was going to be admitted fully into the community of nations. And what he said, and it was true, what he said was true. Russia was never admitted. Russia continued to be vilified. And that vilification has only intensified. We've seen this in years. Yet Joe Biden call him a thug, call Putin a thug to his face. And then, of course, once the invasion happens, you have Russian ballet dancers and singers, even a Russian kid who's a child prodigy on piano being uninvited to events. You have Russian cats uninvited from cat shows. You have uh, the first uh, cosmonaut, the first human in space. Now he's been, you know, his name's been deleted from whatever, the Space Hall of Fame. You, you get uh, Gagarin. It's almost comical, isn't it? I mean, it uh, it'd be comical if, if it wasn't so vicious and hateful. I mean, you have Russian restaurants in New York that are getting death threats. Um, and so, again, the Russians are seeing – I think the Russians are stunned, okay, because they, they thought that maybe people hated Putin, right? Maybe people hated the government. Maybe people still thought confusedly that they were still the Soviet Union, which many people, I think, do in this country because they're pretty confused about everything. Uh, but they had no idea how much people hated Russians, let me let's go back. I think and, they're just, they're just in school. 
Go ahead, Christine. I was just going to say, you know, both of you, and, and this is something people don't want to talk about, all right? Let's talk about the, the when people, the Nazis, okay, the Nazis in the Ukraine. Let's just put it right out there, because I think that most people think of Zelensky um, as being the darling. Zelensky's going to save the day. Zelensky's going to save, uh, you know, everybody from going to the brink of World War III, possibly. Um, and I agree with you, Dan, he is a puppet, but let's talk about the, 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 the fact that there were cleansings in 2014 and the history of that. I think it's really important for people to understand there are no saints here and the level of disinformation is massive because this, this part of the story is completely underreported here in the West in America. Yeah, no, it's been poo-pooed, in fact. Although, if you look at the news stories from 2014-15, it wasn't quite, the media hadn't quite got the word that you don't talk about that. So you'll find, and you can look for this, you'll find Newsweek, you'll find other mainstream papers talking about the neo-Nazis there. You'll see Amnesty International condemning war crimes, ethnic cleansing, uh, other acts uh, against the Russian ethnics in Donbass. Um, again, and in Den Odessa, Odessa. Of course, the massacre in Odessa, again, where people were burned alive. They burned a building right. to the ground with people in it alive. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those but were, again, my, my memory is that those were local people that did that. Yes. And again, the West, although at that time even tried to, again, obfuscate, oh, it might have been the Russians burning themselves on fire. Again, just crazy stuff, but at least they recognized that it happened. Um, and yeah, there were grisly, first of all, you had Poroshenko himself saying that, uh, vowing that the ethnic Russians in Donbass would be living in bunkers for the rest of their lives, okay? Um, there was open hostility. And yes, and the neo-Nazis attacked uh, Donbass. Apparently there were instances of them literally crucifying people. Uh, in the Donbass on crosses. I mean, is that why, is that, Dan, is that why, is, I mean, is that memory you think in Putin's head when Putin has said, you know, they're, they're we're going to, we're going to address this once and for all, meaning that has been morphed and in, interpreted to be that they were going to do executions in the squares? Of course. And again, when he had 60,000 Ukrainian troops lined up, apparently ready to go for it, in a bigger way, of course, that's what he's thinking about. And again, let's remind ourselves, most of these are Russian citizens as well. I mean, again, if these, if the U.S. had thousands of U.S. citizens, millions of U.S. citizens in some country, and they were being attacked because they're U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. because they're Americans, identify as Americans, we'd be in their... Again, we wouldn't have waited eight years. I mean, that that's just a fact. And again, that the U.S. couldn't – well, it wasn't that they couldn't. The U.S. wanted this war. They wanted to poke the bear. They wanted the bear to react. So it wasn't just that they were turning a blind eye and didn't care. They were stoking this. And we know the CIA. We know what the, what the, for, the group formerly known as Blackwater – I forget what it's called now. Um, Eric Prince's group, they've been in there training some of these ultra-right groups to do what they've been doing. Again, really, not because they 
care about Ukraine at all, but because they wanted this confrontation with Russia, a confrontation they thought they could win. Now, they may be surprised now that maybe they can't win this and that the Russians were have more resolve uh, than they anticipated. But yeah, of course, of course, this is what Putin was seeing. And while the numbers, and I don't know the total numbers, I've seen various numbers of these neo-Nazi regiments. Um, but what we do know is they have an out, whatever their numbers are, they have an outsized influence on the government in Kiev. Yeah, they do, because Kolomoisky funds them and Kolomoisky put Zelensky in power. Right. He's, he's the oligarch that ran the TV show, TV station, their network that Zelensky worked for. I mean, and again, we know that Zelensky was powerless to resist them. He even uh, appointed one of the alt-right leaders to his his National Security Council uh, late last year. Yeah. And again, whether he wanted to or not, but he did it because he thought he had to. Well, if he thought he had to, then it means they are very powerful and they're very influential and they're probably the best fighters in Ukraine. They'll, they're probably the last fighters that will be fighting the Russians. Yeah, they're in Mariupol right now. But, you know, they fighting. are. There's, and yeah. there are thousands of them. We know there's... Is, there's that, is, is the man you're talking about, Dan, is he, the, is he the fella in the last couple of days who's been on TV addressing the Ukrainians? There's there's somebody that has worked with Zelensky for a number of years. Yeah, I, I'm not he sure. recently honestly. surfaced, I heard about, and is, is actually making statements on television to Ukrainians. I've seen this guy, and I, I honestly, I don't recall who that is, but I also re, have seen he's been saying some really, you know, strong Nazi, messages. Yeah, Nazi type, you know, threats and whatnot. His name and is, I, I forget his name, but we've reported on him before. Um, yeah, and I'm forgetting his name. But this, so it's a serious problem. Like this neo-Nazi thing is a serious problem. And I don't want to over, yeah. Let me, let me say something that's even bigger than that, is that it's a serious problem because this ideology is spilling into the United States. Poroshenko, who you, you talked about, was the president after Maidan. He's funding was, you know, he signed the Minsk agreements, which were supposedly peace agreements in Donbass, but he had no intention of ever doing thing that he signed. So that was another point that Russians are like, you're not following through on, you know, your agreements to us. So Poroshenko was laundering hundreds of millions of dollars to the central bank, to his offshore accounts. Uh, he was colluding with Biden against Trump, first Bernie Sanders and then Trump. So all the information operations that were run in the U.S. were run out of Ukraine. So you have this massive corruption of the U.S. national security establishment. You have literally foreign interference. Remember the black book they came out with, with uh, what's his name, uh, Paul Manafort? Yes. That was created by the Ukrainians. It didn't exist. And I actually broke that story in 2015 at the Washington Times. They made up this thing. And, and you know, in the, he got later convicted of tax crimes, but it had nothing to do with with that thing that just didn't exist, that he was taking payments or whatever. So you had the Ukrainian government doing all this against the United States. And also Brennan was bringing these Nazi types into Seattle in a massive migration. And that's where Antifa sprung up. So you literally have Nazis in some of these brown shirt movements in the US that came out of Ukraine. So yeah, in fact, yeah, and there's some good stories. Yeah. There's some good stories in mainstream press, again, from a, a couple years ago, talking about at least 20,000 ultra-rightists in the U.S. who got trained mm -hmm. in Ukraine 
by the ultra rightists. Again, now no one will talk about this, but you're right. There's been a spillover, and again, they have a messianic view, like the Nazis had, that they're going to spread this ideology, and they have spread it in Europe, in the United States. And again, the irony of irony that I see here, of course, of many ironies, and there are a lot of ironies, is that a lot of the same people who see a Nazi everywhere in the U.S., in Canada, who claim the truckers were Nazis, da, 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 they see Nazis where they're not. They don't see Nazis where they are or care about them. Krista Freeland, the finance minister in Canada, right, is the Ukrainian Nazi. I mean, her grandfather was a Ukrainian Nazi. She's part of this OPA movement, which is the nationalist movement, you know, Ukrainian uh, business council or whatever that has massive lobbying influence into the United States. If you saw the, the numbers that were going from Ukraine to Hillary Clinton's foundation, it was massive. It was the by factors of 10 where most of the money came from into the Clinton foundation it was from Ukraine. It was from and Ukraine. She's also guys on the board of the uh, World Economic Council uh, yeah. that in Davos that uh, Klaus Schwab runs. And that should be noted for people when she is the deputy minister and when the, she is the person who, who um, announced and I'm told by our sources in Canada, she is the person who came up with the decision to freeze the accounts of the truckers. And after five days, they unfroze it, basically because the banking industry said, this is craziness because non-trucking people were taking their money out of the banks because they actually came out and, uh, you know, and supported not ne necessarily in Ottawa, but on the overpasses and along the highways. And they were, they felt that they are, their money may be, you know, in danger of being frozen as well. So her influence needs to be, I mean, people need to understand she's not just some woman who's a deputy minister. She has long, you know, her connections to the Ukraine Nazis, but also the globalists is, is absolutely proven. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, I and I think there's a few things to say here. One is about this freezing of accounts, not just in, a ca in Canada, but the freezing of Russian assets that happen to be abroad and, mm -hmm. and, and, and Russian property is that, you know, and again, I've heard good commentary on this. This is really going to undermine uh, the entire world economic system, right? Because we, Everyone has to depend on the fact that if I put money in a bank, it's my money. And you can't. Not anymore. Right. Not anymore. Right. Whether I'm Russian, whether I'm a truck driver, whatever I am, mm -hmm. that's one thing the system, and we have due process. You know, we have a constitution with due process requirements, and we have a takings clause. You can't take property without proper compensation. All that's being thrown out the window here. And people seem too many people are accepting this that, that this can be done, and this will destroy uh, the world economy. But the other thing to say about this internationalization of Nazism, and again, people are a lot of people watching this or listening think, may think these people are crazy, right? The U.S. fought the Nazis in World War II, blah blah blah. We know the people, who took, the people who took the money out of the bank in World War II were the Nazis, right? And in war after World War II, we had Operation Paperclip, right, where the right. the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, brought over over a thousand Nazi scientists to the U.S. to be, you know, for the war against what we wanted to be the war against the Soviet Union. 
you know. And you had people like, if you ever see the movie Patton, you know, General Patton spoke for a lot of people when he said at the end of the war, we were fighting, in his view, I don't, not my view, but Patton's view was we were fighting the wrong war. We shouldn't have been fighting the Germans. We should have been fighting the Soviet Union. And that was the view of many people. And that came to fruition after the war when we started using Nazis to prosecute the Cold War and, of course, supported Nazi-type regimes in Argentina, for example, in the 1970s and in Chile in the 1970s, these fascist regimes. So, there, you know, it goes back a long way, this this partnering with the right, ultra-right wing um, against, you know, the left or, or other socially progressive groups. And that continues to this day. And again, I think the we have to remember how sensitive the Russians are to this. They lost 27 million people fighting the Nazis. 80 to 85 percent of the Germans killed in World War II were killed on the Eastern Front. The Russians really won the war in Europe. And that's another thing that galls the Russians and Putin. And that is that we have um, engaged in horrible historical revisionism, where now we don't give Russia credit for defeating the Nazis, right? And if you look at poll numbers, even in France, which, you know, they were pretty aware of what was going on. Um, right after the war, people polled were like, who won the war in Europe? Oh, yeah, of course, the Soviet Union. Uh, but those poll numbers change as the years go on and on. Very, you know, less and less people recognize the contribution of Russia and the Soviet Union to that war and don't understand how much the specter of Nazism uh, frightens them. They don't want another war, which they almost lost right at Stalingrad. They they were able to push the Russians back or the Germans back there and in, in the Battle of Moscow, but it was close. It was a close call where they were almost overrun. And they're not going to deal with that. any. They're just not going to risk that anymore. Um, and people at least have to see things in their perspective. You know, and that's what really troubles me. It's like you don't have to defend Putin. You don't have to defend what Russia's doing. But you have to understand it. If you really care about diplomacy or, or peace, you have to understand your enemies. Even if you view Russia as an enemy, you have to understand them. And, you know, and again, going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, when, the, you know, when we were confronted with Soviet missiles in Cuba, just as the Russians are now confronted with Western missiles in places like Poland. Um, Kennedy, who was a smart guy who read Greek poets, for goodness sake, quoted Aeschylus. Can you imagine that today? I mean, if people could quote Dr. Seuss in the White House, I'd be surprised. Um, he was able to talk to Khrushchev. He did talk to Khrushchev. He did talk to the Russians, even during that period. And he made a deal with them. Right. And he made a, a, a smart deal. He said, look, OK, if you get the missiles out of Cuba, we'll get the missiles out of Turkey. People forgot we had missiles in Turkey aimed at Russia, right, in the Soviet Union, which was pretty galling to them. And he said, and we won't invade Cuba because he knew that was why the Cubans wanted the missiles there to begin with. Um, and that was a sensible deal. And that only came about because Kennedy understood where Khrushchev was coming from. And he saw he was able to take 
he was able to step into Khrushchev's shoes. That's what a good negotiator does. That's what a good leader does. What does that, what does that tell you that um, that Biden will not pick up the phone and call Putin? It tells you everything, and it, it tells you all the bad things about about our government that that they won't do that. I mean, look at what the Russians are negotiating with Ukraine, even as this war goes on, right? They can do that. They can walk and chew gum at the same time. The fact that Biden can't pick up the phone and call Putin, and we know from various sources this is what Putin wants. He thinks it's the U.S. that ultimately could bring peace here. Should be very disturbing to the American people. Should be I think it should be. I think it should be because, um, you know, Putin's talking to the, the president of Finland. He's talking to Xi in China. He's talking to you know, Bennett in Israel. I mean, he's talking to the Germans. He's talking to everyone. Anyone talking, wants Putin's to talk. Putin's on the phone all the time. And he's telling these people that he, he wants Washington to pick up the phone. Right. And by the way, as Americans, if you want to be very practical, because, you know, virtue signaling about standing with Ukraine and stuff, it doesn't help anyone in the real world. Right. The, the thing that could help people in the real world is to urge Biden to pick up the, the phone, right? Uh, and also to support Biden in opposing the crazies uh, in Washington. So this Douglas McGregor, again, and I urge everyone to, to watch this interview with the gray zone, with McGregor. And what his perception is, Biden is the last bulwark against people in Washington and the White House who want a war with Russia. Say that again. Say that again, Dan. So this Colonel Douglas McGregor, who was a chief uh, military advisor under Donald Trump, says that his perception is that Joe Biden does not want a war with Russia, that he's the last bulwark in the White House against those who do want a conflict with Russia. And so if people really want to do something for peace and for the end of this war, especially if you're a Democrat, it's to tell your president, Joe Biden, you support him in standing up to these people. Because if he loses his will or he loses this struggle, we could have a world war on our hands. And of course, Biden doesn't seem to be physically or mentally particularly capable. And I say that in all due respect, but it's a fact. But he needs people, especially amongst his base, to say, we want peace. Biden, we want you to make peace. We want you to call Putin. We want you to get involved in these negotiations. And we want you to stand up to those who want trouble. You know, that is something you could do in a dem- ostensibly democratic society. Write letters, engage in protests. To, you know, to support those things. Those are very concrete things that could be done that could change the tide and could make the difference between peace and, again, World War III. Because there are people who want that, and there are people who have always wanted that. And um, that's a very scary thing. You know, the Dr. Strangelove movie was a, was a comedy, and it was a satire, but it was very real. And it was based on real people who, who did think that a nuclear war was winnable, did think it was livable. There's even made people made calculus that even the stock market would survive a nuclear war. There was even an editorial 
in Huffington Post saying maybe a little nuclear war would be good for global warming. There are crazy people in this mm-hmm. world who mm-hmm. have power who need to be defeated, right? And and if there is a guy like Biden who has some better instincts on this, he should be supported and given some backbone on it. You know? So a last question. Um what do you think of the prospects of peace coming out of the March 24th NATO meeting in Brussels? Well, at the moment, again, unless the U.S. changes its tune, I don't feel very uh, optimistic about that. But again, there's always hope for peace. And I think those who want peace need to make it known that that's what they want. And I mean, people in Europe, people in the U.S. and tell their representatives to NATO that that's what they want, you know. I think it may be a remote possibility, but hey, it's all we got. So we need to support that. I actually, real quick, I think the negotiated settlement is, is going to happen because I don't think, I think both sides need it. I think Putin is, is showing of major cities is working against him. And, and that's creating a situation where it's giving people ammunition to push for a war. And I think that needs to stop. They both need to find some kind of settlement. But the one thing with Ukraine is that the, the corruption in the government, which is funded by this cabal, whoever is pushing all these shots, is overdoing all this, and, and having the state capture by the Soros machine in Ukraine, that has to be ripped out too, in my opinion. Because that's where a lot of these, they can do things in Ukraine against the United States they couldn't do in a Western country. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I agree. I agree. Ukraine is is a broken country. It's a failed state. And the U.S. is using it because it can use it, right? It doesn't have the ability to resist the United States. And that's how the U.S. wanted it. It wanted it in that condition to use it as a puppet, right? You can't use a, 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 a country with a developed government and infrastructure in that way. And the reason it's being used in that way is because the U.S. has brought it to this state where, again, what country would be nuts enough to let another country have bio, even if they're bio research labs in their country doing research on deadly pathogens? No one would. Only a country that couldn't resist it because they're a failed state uh, could possibly allow that, you know, and, and that's what Ukraine is. You know, so no, I think that's absolutely true. Can you give me one second, one second before we go off? Hold up. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. Sorry. I I had to before we leave, I need to show my book. I really Yes, you do, because I was you know, I was gonna say to you, Tony'll be calling you or me, probably. Yeah. So I, I grab my book before we sign off here. Okay. Um, I, I have I do have a question for you though. Mm-hmm. Um, in any of the research, because you've stayed with us, even though your book came out four years ago, have you ever? I mean, what are your thoughts on the Hunter Biden Ukraine laptop communications Burisma? No, that was all real. I mean, it's all true that Hunter Biden you know, got this cushy job on the board of a Ukrainian gas company that we had no right. history or expertise or whatever in, in, in fuel um, 
and uh, made a lot of money. And he made a lot of money because he was Biden's son. And it was totally cor a corrupt situation. And again, when this stuff, the corruption around this started to surface around the 2020 elections and it was shut down as some conspiracy theory, you know, the evidence that's come out is that, no, it wasn't. It was real, you know, and it was shut down by people who wanted to make sure Biden won and they didn't want that controversy coming out. So it was simply shut down as, you know, uh, another QAnon type conspiracy, but it, it was real. And um, people should be concerned about that and could should be concerned that the vice president of the United States used his his power and influence to get his son a cushy deal in a foreign country uh, on the board of, uh, of a gas company. I mean, it's just it's not right. And again, it again is one more proof of how Ukraine is just being used as, as well not not only that but but Dan you know don't forget that it was Hunter Biden who would reach out to Tony Blinken who's now the, the US Secretary of State who is involved with this Ukraine Russian right. mess and so and there were state department officials who warned the Biden camp that what Hunter was doing at the time was inappropriate so you know this this is uh, this is almost a, a come home to roost story in a lot of ways because of the legs of this. I mean, the New York Times came out this week and has said, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but they've they've admitted that you know they have finally verified that the laptop really was the laptop, right. as many right. of us had reported it was, and <laughs> authenticated back in 2020. No, it's right. You know, and again. All the same players are still around. Victoria Newland, who was the mm -hmm. U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who helped with the coup in 2014, she's back and she's still part of uh, U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine. You know, she was the one who recently Obama, Obama put the band back together. Yeah, the <laughs> band is back together. You know, um, you're right. And the songs they're singing ain't ones I want to hear, to be honest. But um, so, show us your book one more time. Yeah, thank it's you. Hot awesome. scapegoat Russia. Yeah, how the CIA and deep state conspired to vilify Russia, and it is out. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold by Skyhorse Publishing. Our friend Tony Lyons. If yes. Book review, if you send us a book review, we'll post it in our book section. I will do Just, it, and I thank you. Okay. I thank you for this opportunity. Really, I enjoy. Well, Dan, this, it's been quite enjoyable. Thank you very much, and please come back and see us again. Thank you very much. Take care.